Amen. Now this is quite a dense passage of scripture and I by no means am not going to unpack it for you in one meeting. But we'll start and I entitled it Jesus Church. Jesus Church and this is why. It's Jesus Church although the word church doesn't even occur in this passage. It does elsewhere such as in Matthew 1618, Matthew 1618, where our Lord speaks of his church. And I say also unto thee, thou, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, Regardless of what all is in this verse, and I'm not going to say anything about it except that this that is spoken about in Scripture is Jesus' church. And he said, I will build my church. And it goes back, actually, uh, back in history, back in redemptive history, in Acts 7.38. Acts 7.38. Acts 7.38 reads, This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. The word church here, ekklesia in the Greek, is also the congregation or assembly of God's people. And so the word is in the Bible, although it's not in our passage. And there are two churches talked about in Scripture. One is the universal church, which is the community of all true believers, of men, women, and children throughout history, and from all over the world, for whom Jesus died, lived, died, and rose again, and ascended. And then there's the local church that is the visible churches, like on the street corners. Those who gather and meet regularly each week to study the scriptures, to pray, worship, and fellowship together. So there are both. I might mention that the letters to the different cities or people of different cities, such as Romans, Thessalonians, and others, Colossians, were examples of the local church. In Acts 2, 41 and 42, Acts 2, 41 and 42, says the following with regard to it. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them, the apostles, about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. That's what they did, just as I said earlier. 
It is Jesus' church because he gave himself for it. In Ephesians 5.25, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Meaning he gave up his life for his bride, the church. He did so on the cross to cover a multitude of sins that no man can number. And he did it out of love. As the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's very individual and personal, but it's also corporate. It's also all the people of God, those who congregate in local congregations and those who represent the universal church at large throughout time and space. And also it's his church because he is the head of it, according to our Passage, verse 15, 4, Ephesians 4.15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Christ is the head of his church. Not a man, not a minister, not minister and elders. Christ. He's the head of what? His body. The body of Christ. In Ephesians 5, verse 23, it says, continuing or reading earlier, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. The church is his body. Back in our passage, it says that in verse 12, the body of Christ. Verse 16, the whole body and the body in reference to what? The church. Now, Jesus saved his church to be a glorious church indeed. As we flip back again to Ephesians 5, 26 and 27 this time, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that it should be holy and without blemish. But not to be holy and without blemish and beautiful only, as it were. As important as that is to be godly, to be holy. After all, we are to follow peace and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. We glorify God in so doing. However, it's not to be sitting pretty, as it were, for the world and even for other churches to see and to admire because as our passage talks about, it is to be a proactive church that does the work of the ministry. That's right. You mean to say, Pastor, we don't pay you to do the work of the ministry and that's it? <laughs> nope. <laughs> I'm just starting the ball rolling. I'm getting the ball rolling. And think about this in, 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 uh, in relation to what I just said. After I'm gone, 
will you continue on? And not just because you're going to get someone to replace moi, but because you are going to be concerned about continuing Christ church here and calling the right man for the job. That's very important. And it's not consigned to some committee of the church either. You all are going to be the one to call him. So, there you go. Why? Another why as to the necessity to be a proactive church. Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the maturing of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Notice that. You have these uh, uh, phrases here that follow one another. One, bang, bang, bang. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So one leads to the other. One dovetails into the other. So those that are raised up to do Christ's work, and we don't have, of course, apostles and prophets anymore. We have evangelists, pastors, and teachers still, although we don't... uh, Think about it, but uh, teachers are not ordained. However, probably we're thinking about teachers that are missionaries that, that are ordained. But can we not include in the rubric of all of that all who teach the Word of God, assuming that you're properly taught and you have the gifts of teaching? So I'm going to assume that in the office of teachers, okay? So, that's what we're about, or to be about, and why? So that every member matures himself and herself in sanctification and in service. It's like that saying, we want to be like the River Jordan that's flowing freely, and not like the Dead Sea where water goes in, but no water goes out. We want that there be an outlet to all that the Lord is teaching us and for all that the Lord is doing in us by his grace and sanctification. And in both ways, we become a mature body like our head, who of course is perfect, who is Jesus Christ. In verse 16, once again, for, from whom... The whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working, in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. You know what I'm reminded of when I read this, every time I read it, is the human body. And I think, you know, how God has fearfully and wonderfully made our bodies to work together in such a fashion that is incredible. And then to think that when one thing goes wrong or bad, how it throws everything off. And we all can relate to this, can't we? Especially we who are further down the road of life. And it's true, isn't it? Now we'll hear more about this next time. But I just want to make that point. Every member matures individually in sanctification and growth in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And thus, the whole church matures and is sanctified, as Christ is said to have done and is doing to his bride, that it would be holy without blemish before him in love. That is why Jesus lived and died and rose again from the dead. That is why Jesus ascended to heaven for it. We think of salvation as having ended on earth. But no, it continues on into glory. And in fact, at this time, he is interceding for all of God's people at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding. He has a work that continues on as our high priest in heaven and will do so until he returns to judge the world. And why he ascended to heaven was so that he might continue his preparation of his bride for glory. Notice in verses 9 and 10. Now he that ascended, what is that? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. And I believe that that is speaking about his having descended or condescended to our lowest state in order to save us from our sins. Then he that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. He is the glorified, exalted, ascended king that is in the process now of consummating his kingdom and bringing his kingdom together as one. And that's why he gives gifts to it of men. Verses 8 says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. What he has done is he has ransomed his people and he has saved them from their captivity and bondage to sin and to Satan. And now he is preparing them through the gifts of apostles and prophets. Now those prophets maybe the Old Testament prophets, but they're also those who were given inspiration in, in the New Testament times, but they're no more, as well as apostles. Regardless of what the Pope says about himself, that he is the successor of Peter, uh, I will tell you that the Word of God begs to differ with such opinions, false opinions as that. But we do have evangelists, who are those like the missionaries that go out with the gospel and then pastors who shepherd the flock and then teachers who also <coughs> teach and reinforce the ministry of the word. And we work together and we'll see that next time more. But I'd like to make a couple more points with regard to the gifts of men. A, to provide his church with his inspired word, as I said, through the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone or the foundation. It also says in Ephesians 2, 20 and 21, referring again to the church, the household of God in verse 19, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. Look at all these imageries here. And they're all with some significance or another, but I just wanted to give you the kind of the, the, the gist of it. 
in whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. The church is an organized organism, to use the words of one theologian. It's organized, or it should be, it shouldn't be chaotic, let all things be done decently in order, according to Scripture. Let this be our final authority. But also, it is uh, the work of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts and minds to enlighten us to the Scriptures. And then one more thing, to, to feed the church, as I've already alluded to. Acts 20.28, 20, Acts 20.28, 20, this is our last scripture. So these who are continuing in their role as Servants of the church as teachers of the same are told in verse Acts 20, 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves. That's primary. It starts here. It starts with you and your household, your small flock, your family. Assuming that a pastor, for example, has a family. Assuming that elders have families. And to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God. There you go. Which he hath purchased with his own blood. You think that the church is special to Christ? You think the church is precious to Christ? Indeed. It cost him. It cost him dearly cost him his life. And so, we should be glorifying God when he takes care of us in these ways. And lastly, Jesus gives gifts to each member of his body. Verse 7 of Ephesians 4. Go back to where we started. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. He gives the gift of grace to each and every one of his people. There's not one of you who are his people who he does not do this for and to. And that you might grow, not only in your knowledge of him, but grow into him, grow into his likeness. Grow into his character. Grow into his being our holy and righteous and just and compassionate and loving Lord. To become mature and complete members of his body. That's what we're called to be. An excellent book that we have studied recently is the book of James. It speaks to this to the point. And I just thank the Lord for the book of James. And we'll be referring to that, I'm sure, in the next issue. Jesus will build his church from without, or is building his church that is from without, by adding those whom he has called, 
as we read in Acts earlier, the Lord added to his church such as for being saved by adding sin, broken people, just like you and I. That's all we are. And by Jesus also building his church from within by personally hand-raising and hand-nurturing from the knee on up infant believers into mature men and women of God. That's his goal. Now, we may not be doing a good job in helping him to reach that goal at all times, but hopefully we're all shooting for the same goal. I'm shooting for it. Those who are also in the position of teaching and ministering are reaching for that, and not just from our church, but even from other congregations, because we're all one body. Remember that. And we can benefit from others that are out there, like online and uh, on, on, on uh, the internet now, you know, we have access to ministries that are most edifying. So this is how God is also building his church from within. This is also how Christ is building his body up. Someone by the name of Shang Sik Kang. It almost sounds like Shang Kai Shek. <laughs> But he is a minister who went to the Philippines on at least two occasions and instructed God's people there that we are working with in that country. He says in his commentary, we only become a mature believer when we systematically learn the word of God. I want to really hone in on that because that is what makes the Reformed Church and the RCUS in particular distinct. That's where it's at when you systematically learn the Word of God. All of these lessons can be summed up in the phrase back in our passage, in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Verse 13. No wonder Cyprian, who was the bishop of Carthage in the third century, one of the church fathers, as we would call him, said, extra Ecclesiam nulla salus. And I know you understand what that meant. <laughs> Outside the church, there is no salvation. And it's true. It's true. So next week, we will study our church. Because we need to take ownership of the church. This is something that has really dawned on me when I do these short mission trips and and meet other believers, in, well, especially in the Philippines. Um, only in the Philippines, actually. <laughs> as much as we had stopped over Korea, uh, through Korea and, and Japan, um, and even China, Taiwan, uh, we have not had the privilege of meeting the saints there. Although I know people in these other places and in China. Uh, but, but nevertheless, when I would go and see what's out there. And I see how they are, especially when they're starting out as a church, a Reformed church. What dawned on me immediately and continues to kind of fixate me, and that is that the church needs to take ownership of the church and not just simply say, well, the Lord is building his church. The Lord is taking care of his church. That's true. But he's using means. And the Lord who ordained the ends 
ordain the means to the ends, and that's us, you and me. So with that, shall we pray? Oh, Father, thank you for this introduction to a most important and most precious and dear entity and object to your heart, which has also become the object of, of our hearts and our love, and that is your church. Help us, Lord, to understand this, of which we are a part, of which our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our head, suffered and bled and died and rose again and ascended on high and in whose behalf he is still interceding and for whom he will come again to bring as his bride home to the banquet feast of the Lamb in your glory. In Christ's name, amen.